This episode is brought to you in partnership with Nestle Carnation. Carnation has been delivering sweet and creamy deliciousness to desserts nationwide for over 120 years. Whether you're making or baking, topping or mixing, their products make desserts easier than ever. Incredibly simple and quick to use. You can make so many amazing treats with Carnation, from cheesecakes to banoffee pie, fudge, caramel and toffee a staple ingredient in every Keen Cook's cupboard. Head to their website, www.carnation.co.uk, for lots more inspiration, and there's even a free downloadable recipe book waiting for you there too. Thank you very much to Nestle Carnation. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven desert island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, how are you? Hope you're all really well. So many of you have been sending the loveliest messages recently about the podcast and I just wanted to say a huge thank you and I'm just so happy that you're enjoying it. We now nearly have 10,000 of you signed up to the newsletter Dinner Tonight, which is so amazing and I actually get quite nervous when I press send now because (laughs) that's a lot of inboxes. If you aren't yet subscribed, you can head to dinnertonight.substack.com and you'll get one gorgeous, easy recipe sent to you every Sunday that you can easily cook for a weeknight supper. I did my first Zoom cook-along for the newsletter subscribers the other day, which was really fun. And we've got some very special guests coming up who are going to be joining for the cook-alongs too, which I'm really excited about. Anyway, on to today's episode. Sarah is a very rare kind of person who has had a lot of success over the years in ways that lots of people could only dream about. And yet she is not at all motivated by the monetary rewards that come from that success, which I think is so interesting. And I loved speaking to her. She created a food empire when she started I Quit Sugar. And so hearing how her interest in food began and how it all started was really interesting. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Do let us know what you thought by leaving a review. And without further ado, here is today's episode. My guest today is Sarah Wilson. Sarah started I Quit Sugar in 2011 as a lifestyle experiment for a column she was writing, and this led to an ebook and then ultimately three New York Times bestsellers and a business that saw 1.5 million people signing up to an eight week nutrition program. But as time went on, Sarah wasn't enjoying it anymore. She says the business got to a point where it had gone from being a joy, creating, inventing, connecting with people to a business concern, and it felt soul destroying and it felt wrong. In February 2020, she sold off the business and its assets and gave everything to charity. She now donates the money to carefully researched charity projects that target inequality, indigenous issues and the climate crisis. Sarah consumes essentials only, has never owned a handbag and doesn't own a car. Her career has been extraordinary. She became the editor of Cosmopolitan Australia at 29, hosted the most watched TV series show in the nation's history, the first season of MasterChef Australia, and wrote the international bestseller, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, which Mark Manson described as the best book on living with anxiety he's ever read. Her most recent book, This One Wild and Precious Life, is also a prize winner, and Sarah has been ranked in the top 200 most influential authors in the world for two years in a row. Welcome, Sarah. It's so lovely to be talking to you. Thank you for a very kind introduction. Not at all. I wondered, how does it feel when you hear an introduction like that and you look back at everything that you've achieved? Oh, that's a really good question. I suppose I often sit there thinking, oh, my God, this bio is going on for a while. And then I just realise I am quite old. (laughs) (laughs) You've done so much. And I'm like, yes, that's because I'm 50, you know. Um, So it's, yeah, I I, I suppose it, it sounds so varied. And a lot of people say, how does sugar, anxiety, the climate crisis, how does it all link together? Um, for me, they've been the big issues that have 
stumped humans around me um, at the time. And so I just moved from one issue that's causing pain in people's lives to the next one. And my publisher once said to me, mm. um, Sarah, you just go for the hard problems. You know, you, you choose the problems that, you know, nobody else wants to face and then you find a way to write about it. Um, so, yes, that's my specialty, I suppose. But, yeah, it's been a career of stumbling into things. I have not ever applied, mm. applied for a job. I've um, just been doing the thing when people have gone looking for, I don't know, the editor of Cosmo or the host of MasterChef. I literally was just going about my business, loving what I was doing, um, often doing stuff for free or doing extra stuff beyond what I was meant to be doing in any given job. So everything sort of happened in that way. I have very little expectation. and That's incredible. Mm, mm, it's, it's odd. It's odd. What you just said about how those things happen you were just going about your business doing things that you enjoyed maybe that's the secret you were doing things that you were really passionate about and people could see that and that's what then ultimately led to future jobs yes and also I've never been attached to the pay outcome or the prestige or the the accoutrements um, I'm actually being usually quite oblivious. I'm not very good at negotiating a pay rise, for instance, because I generally don't know what people are being paid, but it hasn't mattered to me. Having had, by anyone's standards, the most incredibly successful career, which we are going to dig into in more detail, but I wondered in researching you, what is your definition of success now? Oh, that's a great question. For me, success is when I feel congruent, when I wake up and I feel like I am connected into some sort of flow, you know, life flow. That's when I know I'm on the right path. And that's where I get the kick. I get the kick when I'm I'm connecting in, plugging in, I'm attuned with my messaging and what I'm doing. Yeah, success for me really is creating stuff that makes people feel less alone in their wrangling and their wrestling with this whole, mm. with this life, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, fortunately I have a job where I get touch points with other humans who are able to tell me when they feel that connection. And this seems like a silly question to ask, but at the end of this podcast, we are going to send you off to a desert island. And I feel like of all the guests we've ever had, you would probably be the most prepared and possibly <laughs> yes. most happy about that. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I'm very much a loner. I'm a loner and I also grew up in a subsistence living farm. Um, so I grew up with having to build everything. You know, my parents built everything from scratch our house was built from bits and pieces that dad found in construction sites so yes I'm very practical I can do I can fence I can concrete I can milk goats so yes I'd probably do people my friends say to me you know when the apocalypse comes I want you in my community so yeah an island would suit me um and I I love other humans so I wouldn't mind other humans with me but um hmm I'd probably fend quite well. Yeah, I think if there was an apocalypse, I'd also want you on my team too, Sarah. So putting my flag in the ground there. Let's dive straight into the first Desert Island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Oh, yeah. Well, my mother used to make me a cheesecake for my birthday. I just loved it. I absolutely loved it. It was just made out of goat's milk, so it probably would taste strange to most people. But, you know, puff pastry, the pre-rolled pastry, you know, it would be made out of mm. that. That's probably what reminds me of my childhood. It was only once a year that I would get it, um, but it was a, definitely a highlight. Ooh, that sounds good. Was food a really big part of your life growing up? Like, were your parents passionate cooks? Yeah, mum showed her love through food. She's not a very affectionate person. She's very, very shy and introverted. I had five brothers and a uh, sister, and we ate a hell of a lot. Like we're all very large humans and, you know, we just, we just, uh, just ate and ate. Mum had a pig farmer's license um, so that she could go and buy day old bread for 10 cents a loaf because they had no money. That's sort of how we got fed. And, you know, we had all kinds of seconds, but I used to eat a loaf of bread a day. All of us did. Like that's how oh, much wow. we had to eat. Wow. Yeah. And I still eat huge amounts of food. It's a slight problem. I do try to tone it down where I can, but we just have big appetites. So mum was really creative with food. So I grew up with Lebanese food, um, Thai food, Vietnamese, 
all kinds of cuisines generally made out of goat and whatever vegetables or or fruit that we had growing and whatever mum could get pretty cheap but she was pretty creative and the evening meal we had to be there it was a you know it was the highlight of the day um but we were obsessed by food and also partly because we lived in the country when the food ran out that was it so everything was rationed you knew exactly how many pieces of fruit you could have per week how many loaves of bread um so there was all of that kind of thing that was very much part of my childhood so yeah food was big and I was very lucky to actually have an introduction to it Mm. and very lucky to have a mother who didn't diet my mother never ever mentioned oh I mustn't eat that or um I've got to be careful about that she was a big promoter of that um mostly because things didn't get wasted and as a result I think my sister and I Mm. grew up with quite healthy attitudes eating. It's so important, isn't it? Mm. Children are like sponges, aren't they? Mm, Absolutely. And what did you grow up thinking that you wanted to be? Like, did you have any idea? (laughs) Well, when I was seven, and I I don't remember this, but I believe it, my mother told me this, I told mum that I was going to be a nun or the first female prime minister of Australia. Um, or something big, something big. And, uh, you know, and I figured that was big. And, and Mum sort of says that I rationalised that it was a way of not having a man hold me back. Like I figured that to be a nun or a prime minister, I didn't have to have a man around me. And I got it into my little seven-year-old head that a bloke would would prevent me from having the life I wanted, Um, which is so bizarre. That's so interesting. mm, Age seven. Yeah, yeah. I was very, very ambitious from a young age. I had my first business at 11. First job at 11, first business at 12. What was it? Um, It was, I used to make these library bags. So I'd buy a a bolt of fabric and I'd make these library bags and then paint them with like some baking elephants and and cockatoos and beautiful flowers. And I'd sell them in these very expensive toy shops. I also made doll's house furniture and um, greeting cards. I hand-painted greeting cards. I'm not artistic. Like I just worked out that this is how I could make money. It's so interesting, isn't it? Like the more people I talk to, I I think it's just in you or it isn't. And it sounds like it was that entrepreneurial gene. You you just had it from a very young age. I mean, it was massively boredom. And it was also, (laughs) um, also I just wanted to get out of the situation that my family was in. Mm. And my brothers have memories of just, you know, they, they just think of me sitting up a tree. I used to climb up big trees, massive trees, and sit up there and they'd say she'd be gazing out to the horizon thinking, get me out of here. <laughs> and that was it. Like <laughs> I would be dreaming of possibilities <laughs> in the future and I just couldn't wait to get there. I guess it's those kind of dreams that are so motivating and possibly the answer to the life that you've lived. I definitely had a hunger. I had a hunger for more from a very young age. Let's talk about the second desert island dish. What was the first dish you learned to cook? Oh, we had a babysitter. Mum's friend came over to look after us one night. And in the country, it was a big deal. So the, the person had to come and stay the night with us. And um, I thought she was so cool. She wore really awesome oversized earrings. Um, Sally Roberts was her name. And so um, I went about <laughs> making some scones or scones for her. And oh, I wound up putting, instead of two pinches of salt, I put something like two tablespoons of salt in these scones. I was oh, mortified. No. Oh, no. I still, <laughs> I can still remember just the embarrassment like and horror that I'd ruined these scones that I wanted to make for this babysitter. Oh. I think I was about seven or eight because from the age oh. of eight I would babysit, you know, my brothers and I if mum and dad were out, yeah. Are you a big baker now? No, not a baker at all. Like I would never, ever bake. What do you think about the idea that people say, and this is obviously a generalisation, but if you're more scientific focused you're more interested in in baking or perhaps that's where your skill sets lie and then if you're more creative that tends to be cooking because it's a bit less rule-based I haven't heard that? that before but I think there's much to be said about it um I think bake to bake you've got to be very precise and I'm not precise like I I've written yeah. over 3,000 recipes in my life for all the different cookbooks and programs I've done but um I would never ever use a recipe uh, myself um, <laughs> isn't that interesting mm, I used to drive my mother mad um, you know probably after that scones <laughs> experiment Sarah you've written over 3,000 recipes oh god yeah yes 
I think I've got 13 cookbooks and and some of those cookbooks mm. have over 300, like two of the books have over 300 recipes in them. Um, and then on top wow. of that, I ran that 12-week program and for the first couple of years I wrote all the recipes um, myself and, you know, it was three meals a day for eight weeks. Somebody estimated as 3,000. Wow. I haven't done the numbers on it. I think it might be more. Mm, I don't know. But, um yeah, I sort of, I can do it intuitively now. You know, I sort of know how much of this has to go with that and what goes with that and, yeah. I cook by just, yeah, feeling my way into it. Whatever's in the fridge, I'll work with it. So let's talk about I Quit Sugar. So I think it started as a personal project when you were researching a column and it ultimately became this huge international movement. What were the steps between those two things? Like, was the book becoming an international bestseller the catalyst for it all? Yeah, so I think I I think I mentioned it a bit earlier, like it sort of happened by accident. Um I have an autoimmune disease called um, Hashimoto's and some of your listeners would either know someone with it or, or have it themselves and I got a very, very bad case of it. So I got to a point where I couldn't walk, I couldn't work, I got extremely unwell and so I had to sort of pack myself up and I'd sold off a lot of belongings and, and I moved up to an army shed in the forest outside a town called Byron Bay, which is a beautiful place. It's a surfer town bit of a hippie town and I was experimenting with my health and I wrote a column once a week as you mentioned um, for a newspaper magazine where I experimented with different ideas for having a better life and um, it was a self-serving way of being able to go about healing while earning a little bit of money and I was short of a column I knew quitting sugar would probably help I'd done enough research to know that it would certainly help with my inflammatory disease but also my mental health I also have bipolar so um, I tried it out for two weeks and I was a gnarly sugar addict. So I wasn't drinking Coca-Cola and eating slabs of um, chocolate cake, but I was eating the seductive sugar, the so-called healthy sugars. So I was eating granola for breakfast with lots of dried fruit mm. and yogurt or yogurt. Um, I was having a big muffin after lunch or no, at 11 o'clock, you know, one of those big muffins. And you think that because it's a muffin, it must be healthy. I was doing all of those kinds of things. And I added up that I was eating around about 30 teaspoons of sugar a day and our bodies can handle between six and nine. So I gave it a go. I quit and I felt inc- like better within two weeks. My skin changed completely. Wow. My inflammation went down. I had a clearer head and I stuck to it. I just kept going and going. Twitter had just been invented. So there I was in my army shed sharing horrible pictures of these different things I was making. I was making, like, I think I was one of the first people to do vegan chocolate mousse, you know, with the avocado. And I was taking... Oh, with the avocado. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really, for two years, I ran what became the eight-week program on Facebook for free on my own. And around about, I think it was about 2,000 people did the program that way. And then... I started, I thought, I'll put all the recipes in the program together into an ebook. I paid $100 to do an online course on how to do ebooks. And I put together this ebook. Not many people knew about them. And it became an Amazon bestseller. I was expecting to sell 100 copies um, that would pay back, you know, my hundred bucks. <laughs> and in the end, it just, yeah, it just kind of turned into a juggernaut. Then it came out as a print book. So I did everything back to front. Back in those days, it was really odd to do it that way. But it took off initially as an ebook. That's right. And became a bestseller that way. Mm. That's amazing. Mm. So it caught, caught people's attention because they were like, where did this come from? And I, it was a number one, you know, seller in the US. So it just sort of kept growing and growing. And, um, Yeah, I just followed the lead. As people needed more stuff, more information, more whatever, I would just kind of produce it until it became not so much something where I was helping people. It became a business where I had to leverage and I had to make lots of money to pay staff, to pay for this, to pay for that, you know, um, the, the whole capitalist setup. And I went, this is madness. I'm not here to leverage and to make money and to turn this into a, into a business. Um, And so that's when I decided to give it all up. At that time, I remember really clearly, I mean, it it was it was huge and you were everywhere and everyone was talking about I Quit Sugar. Like it it was the movement of the of the year or, you know, of that period of time. What was the experience of being almost catapulted into the spotlight like 
for you because if you know that wasn't what you set out to do you were just trying to help people you wrote an ebook and it turned into this book and then it became this much bigger thing how did you how did that feel personally yeah I rode with it I guess um you know I, I suppose uh, unlike maybe people today entering into a new realm um I was quite old right so I had had a career in Murdoch Media um where I was the youngest opinion columnist in the whole of the Murdoch empire. I was 23 and I was, I had a political wow. column. Wow. Um, and so I copped trolls then it was handwritten letters. So I, I learned to learn about coping with that then. And I also had my photo in the column. I started to get identified from a young age, but it was, you know, it was pretty tame. It wasn't online. Um, then the internet got invented and a few things grew from there and then Cosmo and I started to be in, you know, the, the society pages and things like that. And by the time online started to happen, I was pretty, you know, I was pretty hardened. I was, as you know, a lot older and, and, and philosophical about it all. So I suppose that's how I was able to handle it. I found it incredibly fun, to be honest. There were bits that I didn't find fun because, of course, yeah. I started out doing this because I was sick and I was trying to heal myself. So while ever I was creating, I loved it. And if that meant being, you know, at the opening of the things and photographed and whatever and recognised in the street. I mean, I, I used to come to London and um, I'd be wearing my green, I used to wear these green shorts. I had them for 11 years. So people know me from my clothes because I wear the same clothes. Oh, yeah. I've seen them in the photos. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wear the same clothes every single day. Like I only have a very small selection of clothes. I live out of one bag. And um, so people, you know, would go, are you Sarah? I recognise the green shorts. It wasn't like there were paparazzi following me down the street and they soon realised there's not many secrets with me and and they were never going to get a big, you know, expose, an exclusive, um, because I write about everything <laughs> that's personal to me. So that's amazing that you had that position at the age of 23. Would you say you're an overachiever? And an overachiever, I mean that... I mean that as a compliment. Oh, I would yeah. say before we met, I was thinking, wow, Sarah's the kind of person that puts her mind to something and she just makes stuff happen. But from everything that you're saying, it's it's not even that. It's just like who you are as a person. I think what it is is I have lots and lots of interests and I go down deep into rabbit holes. And look, it's one of the gifts of being bipolar. Bipolar has you know, it has caused incredible amounts of setbacks. It has set me back by years and years. I've had years in the wilderness where I have not functioned as a human um, and have grappled with suicide and, and all kinds of things. But I learned that my bipolar was a gift. That's the whole premise. Make the beast beautiful and then amazing stuff happens. And so I've realised that it's quite a gift to be able to go down and tunnel into a topic and and really get into it and live and breathe it. And then it's really hard, though, when you've got that much information then to try to emerge and write a book that people are going to find accessible. Um, but, yes, it's, it, it, it's, mm -hmm. been, it's been curiosity that has seen me do the stuff that I do. And then along the way people go, oh, we'll have you do the job and we'll work you to the bone until, you know, <laughs> until your curiosity and enthusiasm completely <laughs> dies out and you're, you collapse in a heap and have to move to an army ship. Mm. Sarah, on that positive note, we're going to talk about the third desert island dish and that's the best dish you've ever eaten. Oh, wow. I mean, I love all food um, and I, I've been known to spontaneously cry when I eat some food um, because it just uh, brings me so much joy. <laughs> but I was in Vietnam with my one of my brothers and we were riding a bike around and we, were, we had to ride nine hours in 40-degree heat and it was like this ridiculous humidity. But we were riding through this communist area where you couldn't stop, so we had to get to a destination which was at the top of a mountain range. And um, I had food poisoning, like I was just a mess. And it was nine hours of solid riding in 90, in, in 40 degree heat, this is Celsius, with, you know, almost 100% humidity. And, uh, you know, I'd lost everything in my stomach and all my blood and the whole thing. Anyway, I arrived, I passed out, my brother had to carry him into a shower, he rang my parents, what do I do? And they said, feed her. So he took me down to this like little hole in the wall place and he spoke a bit of Vietnam, um, Vietnamese because he was living there. And um, it was just a woman that had a cauldron and it was a chicken curry and it had lots of sweet potato and potato oh. and carrots in it. 
and um, and it was served with a baguette because they've got that French influence, particularly up in the mountains where we'd got up to Delat. And um, I sat down and I had the first mouthful of this curry and I could feel the electricity going through my body. Like literally I was, I was kind of tingling. It was like I was on fire and I just just cried. It was the most incredible sensation. I could just feel the nutrients going into my body. Um, and I took a photo of it and the photo of this meal sat above my, my computer for many, many years. Um, so that was there. Yeah, that was probably my most memorable favorite meal I've ever eaten. Wow. And it sat above your computer just to remind you of, of how amazing yeah. that feeling was, or was it specifically about the oh. dish? Both. I mean, I recreated that meal, and it was a staple in on the eight I, the eight week uh, the eight week program, and and features in I think mm. my first cookbook because I I think I was twenty five when I did that ride with my brother, or maybe a little bit old. Actually, no, I wasn't. I was older. I was thirty. I was thirty. Yeah. What an amazing experience with I Quit Sugar. It was all about food, and it was about. Uh, people and about health and since you've moved away from that your work has been largely about climate change but it strikes me that those those two things are connected because ultimately they're about people do you think that's your biggest passion in life is actually people yeah I I was always an outsider I didn't have friends and I was bullied from a young age in part because just we were weirdos living out in the country we commuted into town to a small country school and then into town for high school. So I think I spent a lot of my life watching people and trying to understand people and, and loving them, you know, even when I was being bullied. Um, so that would be the common thread. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I guess it's also, you know, I, I wrote a post recently on my Substack about how I go about writing a book or how I choose a topic, you know, how do I get started? And because somebody had asked me that and I said, I. I can smell, I have a, I smell pain in the zeitgeist. I can smell where humans are at. And so, yeah, I mean, it went from the sugar thing, just, it was just, I mean, back then for some listeners, you might not recall, but sugar was in everything and there was no discussion about it being bad. And people were wondering why their energy was just so low and they felt powerless and they were trying all different diets and all of that kind of thing. And so, and then I, you know, and then I moved on to anxiety, depression and so on. And then on to the climate crisis. All mm. of them were at times just before, I suppose, there was a really good dialogue happening. Yeah, you, you've been ahead of the tide. Mm. Yeah. And with the climate, yes, um, I was probably a little bit early for that, but then not because the damage was happening and people needed to wake up to it. Um, and then, you know, now I'm moving on to a new topic, which you know, I always get frightened because I think people are going to, you know, is this a thing? Are people going to believe me? Are people going to trust the research I do? That's interesting. So even at this stage where you've had all the successes that you've had, you do still have that worry in the back of your head about what that's going to look like moving forward. Oh my God. I'm riddled with self-doubt every single day, every single day. Oh yeah. So like I said before, you know, first We Make the Beast Beautiful took seven years. This One Wild and Precious Life took three years to write. It's a lot longer than most people take to write a book. And it's because in the writing of the book, I take people on the journey as I try to navigate a beautiful path through these complex issues. And I'm living and breathing it. So when I start out, I'm in the pain of it all. And I don't know where it's all going to head. And then it Mm. gradually morphs into something. I think that's why it's so powerful, because in a lot of books like that it doesn't feel so personal from the writer and it's sort of it's more just anecdotal advice but to to feel you actually living that experience and and sharing it with the reader I think that's why it resonates so much and and I think that makes it quite unique thank you yeah I couldn't write a book in any other way um I wouldn't know how to I don't think I'd be bored (laughs) we're going to move on to the most important question of the day Sarah what is your favorite sandwich well I don't eat a lot of sandwiches but I'll I'll tell you what I used to eat as a kid and these were my favorite sandwiches I used to fry an egg we had ducks so I used to fry it It was a large egg Mm. and I would have that with raw onion on my sandwich no wonder I didn't have any friends (laughs) Um, wait so a fried egg on bread with with raw onion yeah yeah, it's it's a really great combination. Mm. Um, I would also have Vegemite and lettuce 
um, or, you know, Premite and lettuce. Ooh. Mm. I don't think I'm going to get yeah. any anybody feeling really inspired by these these sandwiches. <laughs> I used to also eat anchovies, just anchovies on, yeah, on sandwiches. So, yeah, I would not come to me for sandwich suggestions, although in my cookbooks I do invent a whole range of really cool sandwich ideas quickly backpedaling there Sarah, <laughs> but don't worry people <laughs> people won't judge you on the sandwiches of your past we know that ultimately when you sold your company you gave the profits to charity and that money just isn't an important thing to you I wondered has it ever mattered to you well I actually gave all the money to charity not just the profits oh wow well because it was just easier I couldn't be bothered to work out the sums I mean it was just a cleaner transaction and I just wanted to be done with it Money has mattered to me, like as a kid, obviously, I was really um, obsessed by saving up money and so on. But owning things has never interested me. I like to be secure and know I'm not in debt. So when I gave the money away, basically I gave the money away because I'd made a commitment to myself to never get caught up in the system again. And this was after I'd hit rock bottom and I was at a suicidal point where I suddenly realised literally in the 11th hour you know, the final second in the 11th hour, that, oh, my God, one thing I haven't tried is living how I want to live with just the clothes on my back and not caught up in the system. I'll live by my rules and I'll just be a free agent floating around the world. When the business um, started, I made a commitment that once I got to a point where I was financially stable to live off the minimum wage for the rest of my life, I would give any, I would give all further funds away to charity and I would just work on projects that mattered to me. Um, and so when that happened, the day that it happened, I just started shutting down the business and selling off the assets because I, I am committed to living that way. Um, I know it's the way that uh, makes me happy. Mm, it's so interesting. Like we obviously all know the saying that money doesn't equal happiness. You know, obviously a certain level of wealth can make your life easier and more comfortable. But I think there are studies that once you pass a particular threshold, your life doesn't get exponentially better. And in fact, it, it gets off. a bit worse. If mm. you're not in that position, it's it's impossible to imagine that. But given what your experience has been, I'm so interested to know if, if that does ring true with you. Oh, 100%. And it was a big thing that I was aware of intuitively. And then I heard about the studies that show how that works. Yeah, I would say so. I look around at all my friends and contemporaries who get more and more money. And honestly, they spend most of their life shuffling money around, either bank accounts or properties or, you know, and when you can't afford something or something's out of that pay bracket, it actually makes life super simple. I think it's maybe because when you get to that threshold, you've got just enough to be comfortable and the things that matter. And then if you pass that point, it's just about stuff that doesn't really matter. And then underneath the threshold, you're more able to see what's actually important. And then once you surpass it, you kind of lose perspective on what it is that actually matters. Mm. Maybe it's that. Yeah, I've written about it, actually. My brother used to get so much joy saving up for things. He would research forever. He'd go to the library and buy BMX magazines, you know, borrow BMX magazines, and he'd research the best BMX. And, and once the BMX arrived, I mean, he was thrilled with it, but I think the process of saving up for it and making the choice and being really discerning is what the fun bit was. And what I see with very wealthy people mm. is they're not engaged in the discernment. They're not engaged in prioritising and really thinking about what matters to them. It's a very good point. Yeah. I, I mean, part of the reason I left Australia to come and live in Paris was because Australia had become so materialistic. And um I, I had to leave that because it was affecting me. That was actually one of my questions about the act of giving, because you've said that whilst it is like obviously a very generous thing to do, you've described it as, a, as actually being the most reliable happiness or wellness hit that you can get. And that made me think, because I think it's so true that often... I don't know, you set yourself goals and you work towards them. But when you hit them, it's kind of underwhelming. But it made me think that the act of giving and, you know, donating and all the rest of it, that feeling actually lasts so much more, so much longer and is so much more meaningful than any arbitrary goal that you might set yourself. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan for finding goals that are all about the in-between times, you know, my goals, mm. you know, you asked earlier about what would make me happy, what makes, you know, makes me feel like 
I've been succeeded or, or whatever. Really, um, it's about how I feel in the in-between because partly because wherever I work on takes so long. So I've got to enjoy it in the meantime. You know, like yeah. I need to actually. Yeah, but you'd be surprised by how many people don't. Well, that's right. And I, I can quite often slip into that myself and I pull myself back and go, oh, Sarah, you're gripping, you're getting too rigid, um, regroup, refocus and, and make sure you enjoy this. This is meant to be mm. fun. You can choose to find the process. And it might, the process might be you love the walk to work each day, you know, um, and that just brings you so much joy and you make it a joyful experience. We've got to find the joy in the meantime, in the process. Let's pause there and talk about the fifth desert island dish. What's the dish you eat the most often? Okay, so I'm currently living in the smallest apartment in Christendom, uh, which is about the average size <laughs> Parisian apartment. It's okay. very limited in terms of what you can cook. However, this is what I tend to cook on a regular basis. And it'll be whether I'm in Greece wherever I'm in the world, um, I will get whatever vegetables in season. So at the moment I'm getting courgettes, um, red peppers, red onion, and I cook it up just gently with um, I've got a rosemary bush just outside my apartment. I take some of that. And then I buy beetroot. You can buy beetroot that's already been cooked and peeled because I've got this small kitchen. I can't have all these mm. dishes splashing and cooking all day. Um, so I cut up the beetroot and then a peach because they're in season, fry it all off in oil. And what I'll generally do is I'll get a, I'll often have a tin of sardines. So I use the oil from, I always buy my sardines in oil so that I use the oil. If it's in brine, I use the brine as well. And I use that to cook it in and then I toss the sardines through at the end. And sometimes if I haven't got sardines, it'll be mm. beautiful cheese or it'll be um, sunflower seeds on top. So that's, that is my lunch a variation thereof um, most days. That sounds amazing. Has the work that you've done with I Quit Sugar, has that all stayed with you? Or is it one of those things where you, you take certain elements and those elements will stay with you forever? Yeah. So with the sugar thing, I mean, it was an eight-week program where you go real cold turkey, completely off sugar, so that your body can recalibrate. And then, you know, the the gist of my program was, and then you go and work out how much your body can handle. And most people will arrive at about six to nine teaspoons of mm. added sugar, which is what the WHO and various health organisations around the world recommend. And I naturally eat about that much. And I guess the principles of no restriction, even though people think that quitting sugar is, is restrictive, I basically switched the mindset to abundance. So I would, you know, uh, crowd out sugar with other foods that was the technique for getting you off sugar but um the, the content I very much stand by and in fact you know it really I, I sort of see a lot of nutritional programs and studies confirming the science that I was basing my stuff on I'm not suggesting that I came up with the ideas mm. but I collated all the best science that I felt was legitimate and put together in a program that was accessible for the everyday busy person that didn't feel like a diet and so, you know, I allowed a glass of red wine six nights a week and I explain why red wine, not white wine and things like that. So I still live that way. Mm. But I do eat three squares of 90% dark chocolate for breakfast every morning, which always shocks people. Um, but that's what makes me happy. I knew it was every day. I didn't know it was for breakfast. It's for breakfast. It's all I eat for breakfast. Yeah. I love that. I'm going to adopt that myself. Since stepping away from I Quit Sugar, you've continued to write best-selling books, you have a newsletter, and the latest book, This One Wild and Precious Life. To me, it's an exploration in what matters most in life, but is, is that how you'd sum it up? Yeah, I mean, that's basically the through line um, for the book. You know, my modus operandi was to get people engaged in the death of the planet and really our existential precariousness. Um, and how do you do that? I was watching the climate movement. It wasn't engaging people. It was engaging the same people, but a lot of people just went into denial, into overwhelm, you know, put their hands up and said, I can't even, and just consumed more. Um, so it was about trying to find a way to both engage people in it, so people who are, had a guilty, itchy, cringy feeling that they're not living how they're meant to, and getting them feeling like activism, and activism can take all different forms. I'm not a protester in the street waving things because it's just I get very awkward around that. But so there's all kinds of ways that you can be engaged. And then I, I, oh, I agonised about how 
to make this new way of being sexier than the status quo because that's the only way that change comes about. And so hiking, I felt, was a really good way to do that. So I hike around the world and there's three hikes that I do in the UK and I hike in the footsteps, like I mentioned before, of people like Nietzsche, Wordsworth, but I also go in search of this this bizarre monk down in Japan um, who's an expert on forest bathing and so I finally meet up with him and we do a hike together. It took me four days in the mountains to find him, all this kind of thing. So I try to make the whole hiking thing seem really cool and embracing and basically that's because when you get out into nature, nature can do its work on you and you start to feel this expansiveness and you feel this awe and you feel this congruency and attunement and you really do become part of, I guess, the natural flow of life. And my thesis was when you love something hard enough, when a human loves something hard enough, we will do whatever we can to fight to save it. And I feel that we've become, we'd become so disconnected from the matrix of life, from our nature, from nature. Um, we were craving a, a reconnect and when we reconnect, we suddenly realise we've got to fight for this. No, it's so true. Like reading about your explorations and the hikes, it sounds, yeah, it, it, the adventures sound amazing and you're right that they, they also feel very far removed from people's everyday life. We were talking before we started recording that you said that the reaction to the book in the UK has been the the one that's most resistant to actually acknowledging the climate change aspect, which I, I think that's really shocking. So does that mean that the UK, like we just don't want to accept that, that it's a problem? Yeah, I've been trying to get my head around it. So, I mean, previously when I've worked on different books. So the I Quit Sugar book, it took a number of years before it came out in the UK. But with the climate, it's sort of interesting. I was in the UK last year when it was that hottest day. It was 40 degrees in London. The the pavements were melting. I'd been hiking up in the north of England and it looked like Australia. The earth had cracks in it and the sheep you know, were looking emaciated. It was it was such a surreal experience. But I was listening to the news reports. I was catching up at sort of dinner parties. Our mutual friend organised a dinner party, I think, the night before that really hot day. Um, that's Miss Melissa Hemsley, who's, you know, just the, one of the most fabulous people on the planet. Bit of a shout-out to her because she deserves it um, and does beautiful recipes. Um, I presume she's been on this show because she would have some incredible she desert has, island recipes. Yes. But, um yeah, I I was amazed at how people just weren't talking it. And I suppose it hadn't hit them, um, even though Europe and their holiday destinations are only an hour away, you know, like Spain was burning, Portugal was burning. Um, I suppose it hasn't been right on the doorstep. Um, and, look, I think there's also, I don't like sort of making crass generalisations about an entire nation, but my experience and I think the reputation of the Brits is that they don't like confrontation. Um, and also, you know, and don't like making a a fuss, you know, oh, it'll be all right. I think that's got a lot to do with it because to, to really fully embrace the reality, the truth and the beauty of the climate crisis, you have to confront. And that's the challenge, I think. And it's a challenge for everyone. But I think in Britain, there is that culture of, you know, oh, we don't make a fuss of these things. We don't get too hysterical. Are you worried that because of, you know, the cost of living crisis and the consequences of COVID in the last couple of years, that people who might previously have really cared about the climate wrongly, (laughs) it seems less of an emergency compared to the other immediate things that people are dealing with. Do you think that's a major problem? Oh, 100%. It's a very big challenge. And the horrible irony of exactly what you've just pointed out is that the cost of living crisis, Mm. the pandemics and the the very real threat that we're going to get another pandemic way worse than COVID-19 any time now, all of those things are the climate crisis. That is the climate crisis. That is what life is going to look like as we experience climate collapse. So as energy um, becomes a scarce resource and more and more expensive, the cost of living crisis just explodes. And this is not a scenario that's just going to drop off and we'll go back to normal. There is no more normal. And that is because we've hit six out of nine planetary boundaries and two of the remaining three are about to go. 
there is no stopping this runaway train. And so the cost of living crisis, it is the climate crisis. This is the reality. That's terrifying. Well, in a very unnatural segue, Sarah, <laughs> we're going to talk about the sixth desert island dish. <laughs> what is your go-to dinner party dish? <laughs> well, it's, well, it's actually, there's a bit of a segue there. Anyone who's watched Don't Look Up, you know, there's the final scene in the movie where everyone's having well, that yes, dinner party, yeah. right? So dinner parties, I think that's a great way to live in the moment and, and be have a beautiful existence. Um, what's my go-to dinner party dish? I do these um, di- little things like where I make dim sims um, out of rice paper rolls so they're gluten-free, but I do them hamburger flavour. Sounds really wrong. I'm sure my Asian brethren Ooh. are thinking this is insane. But I'll get grated beetroot, um, <laughs> you know, sort of some kind of meat. You can cheat by using a bit of sausage and cheese and pickles and you roll it all up and and bake it in the oven and it's awesome because the cheese melts through it all and they're just like little hors d'oeuvre things that with a novelty effect um serve it with tomato sauce um yeah I've never heard ketchup. of something like that yeah I invented that it delicious you know actually I'll tell you what really works and I often make is a superfood lasagna cake what I do is I worked out that rice paper rolls mm. are the same size as one of those spring form cake tins so it's the perfect size. Yeah. So rather than using for your layers of, of pasta sheets, you use rice paper rolls, which you can buy from, you know, Asian grocers, super, super cheap. And so I would layer up these rice paper rolls with all different layers. And you can be, make it vegetarian or meat-based, you know, your, your tomato sauce, layers of eggplant, layers of aubergine, courgettes, and then um, and, and mince uh, uh, and so on. And you layer it all up with in between, you do these sheets of rice paper roll, bake it in the oven, and then you release the spring form tin. It's a cake. It's this incredible, magnificent layered cake. Wow. Hmm. And do you, do you soak the rice paper before you layer it up? No, there's no need. I make recipes where you cut out steps. So you don't need to do that because you've got all the moisture, yeah. particularly from the aubergine, right? So it's that soaks it as it's cooking. Wow, that sounds amazing. I'm going to have to try that. At your dinner parties, do you serve pudding? Yeah, I've, I'll tell you one like really cheat, easy dish that I make when I'm in charge of making sugar-free dessert. Um, and it's in my first cookbook, but I do variations of it. Like I basically get, Coconut oil, I mix it with raw cacao powder, a bit of rice malt syrup and rock salt and then make a big batch mm. of that and then I, I make this bark. So I put sort of some greaseproof paper out and I'll then place a whole bunch of coconut, berries, nuts um, and then pour the chocolate sauce over the top and put it in the freezer and then I break it up into bark. And sometimes I'll buy like a sugar-free ice cream or I'll make it myself. And I make this kind of explosion, kind of big cake, you know, sort of monstrosity. I sort of make it very organic with the bark sticking out of it and berries and flowers. (laughs) And it sort of looks like this big sort of centerpiece. And you keep it in the fridge until you're ready to serve it. Oh, I think I've made your bark. It's very good. Very good indeed. On Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner. I wondered what is your most treasured cookbook? Okay, so like I said, I don't use cookbooks, but when I needed to sort of look up a traditional recipe, I would go to um, Stephanie Alexander. Stephanie Alexander is like, who's your doyen of cookbook writing? Mary Berry? Mary Berry or Delia Smith? Yes. So Stephanie Alexander is the Australian version of that. We have another one called Margaret Fulton. That was my mother's generation. Um, Stephanie Alexander would write these big fat cookbooks which were essentially an A to Z of the classic recipes and so you would literally search by ingredient and you would find all the things you could make with that ingredient and she was one of the first to do cookbooks like that and the premise behind it and I ended up doing my indexes like that was by ingredient if you have a whole heap of aubergines or a whole heap of tomatoes or a whole heap of cucumbers and you want to do something with them, you know, you could go to this chapter and, and find a bunch of things to do. So that's my go-to cookbook for, for sure. It's accurate. It's got all the very traditional ways mm. of making things with lots of little notes on the side. And you'll notice, um, Margie, on my books, I have these big fat columns where I allow people to write notes and I put notes in the side as well. So as I edit the book and I massage it into shape, I write my personal little notes on the side and I do it so that people write their bits and then when they share the book 
with a loved one or a friend, you know, a friend or whatever, it's got comments in there as well. And Stephanie Alexander did a bit of that in her cookbooks. She'd have little notes to the side, giving you little extra tips. I love that. There's nothing better than getting a secondhand book that's got someone's personal notes about what they loved and what they did. Love that. We're on to the final seventh desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? I think about this way too often. I've been obsessed by death row for a long, <laughs> long time and I've interviewed two people who counsel people on death row. You know the nun from Dead Man Walking? She's like a real-life wow. nun. Um, Susan Sarandon plays yes. her in the movie. So <gasps> this nun, Sister Helen Prejean, um, and she's on Instagram if you want to follow her. She's in her late 80s now. But she wrote the book that, and the movie is about her. So wow. I think about what I would choose as my last dish before I was uh, being executed. Similar similar concept. This is a bit less morbid than that, Sarah. You're just going to a lovely desert island for a while. That's right, that's <laughs> right. But yes, needless to say, I have thought about the last meal I would have in civilization. I think I would eat roast pork, a big roast pork dinner with applesauce, mm. sweet potato, all the crackling with um, steamed courgettes that I absolutely love. Like when I get asked what's the one food you could not live without, it would be courgettes as the staple food that can just go into anything oh really mm-hmm. um so yeah that mm. that's probably the last meal I would eat and would you have a pudding before you go uh yeah what would I choose I'd either be that cheesecake I mentioned earlier mm. or the 90% dark chocolate or you know I'm a big fan also I'd probably go an apple crumble an apple crumble because you want comfort food you know Ooh, yes you can't go wrong with an apple crumble mm. yep yep Very good choice. Sarah, with that, we're going to send you off to the desert island. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to to, uh, fending for myself. uh... I have a lot of faith in you, Sarah. I think you're going to be absolutely fine. (laughs) So there we have it. Another delicious day of desert island dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. It really does make such a difference. I know it's so boring when people say that line over and over again, but by doing that, you boost the show in the charts and then that means that other people are more likely to come across it and you get more listeners. And that means I can keep bringing it to you each week, which is great. If you don't already, then you can come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. And don't forget, you can go to dinnertonight.substack.com where you can sign up for the newsletter. Thank you very much for listening and I will see you next week.